You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. We have just such an amazing, amazing asymmetrical setup to be long energy. Um, it just blows my mind, you know, because you don't have, you can't have political security without energy security, ever. Like, just go and look throughout history. So energy is going to get fought over, um, and and at a point where we have massive lack of capital expenditure and an insufficient supply. Hey guys, this is Brian Lenny of Mining Stock Education and Junior Stock Review. Today with me, I have Chris McIntosh of Capitalist Exploits. Chris, it's great to have you on the show. I've been a big fan following your Twitter for a while now. Uh, because you're new to the show, could we start off with an intro to yourself and to your newsletter? Yeah, sure. Well, um, appreciate you inviting me on, Brian, and um, I'm glad to be speaking to your audiences, although I think I'm probably a little bit different to some of your um, previous guests in that I'm not specifically dedicated to mining, as you'll probably find out. But um, so I'm, yeah, I, I got a couple of businesses. The principal business is actually an asset management company called Glenorchy Capital. So sort of full disclaimer on this is that, you know, we're an SEC registered firm. Everything that I say, you should ignore and please just listen to CNBC. Um, so but so we have Glenorchy Capital where we manage um, private client money, and then we have a newsletter where we um, we basically talk about what we are invested into, and provide um, stocks, you name it. Uh, we talk about everything that we're invested into. You know this whole analogy of this whole idea of I can't tell you what I'm investing into is 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 in my book complete nonsense. Anyway, so that's what our publication is. It it came on the back of originally just writing load notes to clients um, of our asset management company, and then people loved it and then shared it with friends, and one thing led to another. And being a capitalist that I am, I figured I might as well turn that into a business. So those are the two businesses. Um, anyway, yeah. So um, that's me. I've been in investment banking, and then I've built a number of firms in venture capital and a number of other things. But I've been running the hedge fund business and publication of the ideas within the hedge fund since 20, what would it be, 15, 16? I can't remember now, somewhere there. Yeah. Cool. And so would you consider yourself a generalist then? Yep, 100%. Look, I've, I've been fortunate in my life to have done very well basically by looking at massive capital flows and trends in motion or trends turning like turning points trends and and major structural things so like i'm not gonna go and look at a sector even like you could give me some company go there's like a major it's super cheap and whatever it is and and if it's not in a sector that's particularly interesting to me that i think is inflicting or has major structural trends behind it then i'm not interested and part of the reason behind that is quite simple if you go through any major bull or bear market in any industry, what you're likely to find um, is that probably about 80% of the move in any one stock within that industry is actually down just to the trend. You know, you think about the dot-coms, you think about any, any look, you're in commodities, right? So you've got structural commodity markets, right? And 7 to 15 years, depending on cycles, all that kind of stuff. You just look at the movements in those cycles. You could, if you buy the bottom in cycles, it's like 
Yes, you can stock pick and everything else, but by basically the stuff that does well, often it's doing well as a consequence of a structural bull market. That's it. So 80%, so like it's, if that's roughly 80% of the stock move, then like why, why I should be dedicating maybe only 20% of my time to actually stock picking. 80% of my time should be identifying the structural trends and finding those particular markets, whatever they might be. So in that respect, I'm generalist. I'll buy peanut butter if it makes sense. I couldn't give a shit. At the moment, we are very heavily invested into commodity markets, energy in particular. But again, that's as a consequence of um, those structural trends in motion. Okay, so let's talk about energy. What in particular do you see moving forward that has you concentrated uh, into it? Well, where to start? Well, look, again, this is a cyclical market, right? Um, as most commodity markets are, goes to boom to bust. So our last high was sort of the 2012-14 period. You always have your excess in supply that comes on stream, um, massive capital expenditure, M&A at the top of the cycle. All of that collapsed, and we should, we should probably have started capex spending um, around sort of 2016, um, and we didn't. Nowhere near. And here we are, 2024 nearly. And CapEx spending is dismal. It's slowly picking up in certain sectors, but we're so far behind that curve, it's it's frightening. Um, I've never seen an environment that's anywhere near as extreme as the environment is today for energy in particular. Commodities in general, but energy in particular. And there's a like we could argue and talk about why so much of this is true. In large part, some of it's you know, the whole ESG garbage. This idea that um, that that stopping showering is going to save the planet and eating bugs and all that kind of nonsense, but it's it's become prevalent throughout Western society, and as a consequence, there's been very very little capital expenditure. If you got to, if you and I were going to like set up a business. And we wanted to go and finance, let's say, dirty old coal, right? So we just want to set up a fund just to do that. And we went and we did a roadshow across New York and all the major places in, in, in New York, London, Berlin, like Western cities. We would get kicked out of most boardrooms. People would just not be interested. And so that's been the, that's been the case for like certainly since 2016. Um, so there's no there's no real. Um, there's no real desire to finance it. And then at the actual management level, most of the management teams that have been in in, in control of these companies are super gun shy, right? Their shareholders just got so pissed off with them because what happened was in many instances, um, they went through bankruptcy processes and um, you know all your debt holders became equity holders. So now they're super risk averse. They just want to make sure that the capital doesn't get lost. So they're not they're not like, oh yeah, let's go and drill or let's go and you know expand or anything like that. So so we're just that that part of that cycle has been extended far more than it would have in any previous cycle that we looked at. There's a, like I said, there's all these other factors. A lot of it is is down to these. It's down to ideology basically. Um, to a large extent, and that's filtered through into the financing of it. It's filtered through into um, management teams, um, but we are at a point where that's that's flipping. You know, like before we started hitting record, Brian, we were talking about this whole 
renewable space and how that's all collapsing, you know. And so we're seeing a lot of the, the, the companies that had gone and said, hey, we're going to spend all our money on renewables and we're going to do wind and solar and algae and unicorn farts or whatever it is. And now they're all flipping. Right? And in large part, they're flipping, going back and changing um, either the timeline, saying, oh, well, you know, we're not going to do it as fast as we thought. Maybe we're going to do it a little bit slower or, hey, we're just changing strategy. And a big part of that is actually just because the subsidies that have been funding them that have kept them alive often had timelines on them and they're running out. Um, and that's basically the, you know, it's what was Maggie Thatcher's thing. Um, socialists only work as long as they um, can keep spending other people's money and they die when they run out of other people's money. And in large part, that's the situation across the West, And but it's filtered down into that energy space. And then you layer, layer that with the geopolitical tensions um, and it's like we have just such an amazing, amazing asymmetrical setup to be long energy. Um, it just blows my mind, you know, because you don't have, you can't have political security without energy security ever. Like just go and look throughout history. So energy is going to get fought over, um, and and at a point where we have massive lack of capital expenditure. And an insufficient supply on a on a like here's the thing that people don't don't forget it's not like software, right? It's a depletive resource. Like from the moment you if you find a mine and it's got X number of tons in it, from day one to day ten, day day ten it should actually be worth less. Why? Because you pulled some of the shit out the ground and sold it. So you know one of the things uh, through my experience as an investor. It- I'm definitely in the early part of my investing career, but you know, things to me that seem pretty, like I totally follow where you're talking about, but timelines have always been skewed in my view because I thought, oh, you know what? You know, you look at the 2008 crash, you, we come out of that, interest rates are super low, quantitative easing, just, you know, crazy amounts of money were printed. And I thought to myself, hey, you know what? The inflection point to this thing getting really bad has to be around the corner. And really it wasn't, <laughs> you know, we kicked the can down. If it wasn't for COVID, I'm not sure, I'm not sure where we'd be in, let's say the gold market or anything like that. Maybe we'd just be kicking around sideways. So I guess my question is, what do you think is that kind of catalyst to say, um, you know, the energy is that important or commodities are that important and, you know, they have, we can't just rely right now with the infrastructure on, you know, solar or wind. Um, like when are they going to recognize that fossil fuels are going to be a big part of the economy uh, moving forward? And uh, you know, is it one cold winter away, or what do you think? I think it's already inflected. It's already turned. And and what what we're struggling with is a um, is a disconnect between information flows or or narratives, should I say, and reality on the ground. And so what I mean by that, and this is because the media is just so hopelessly corrupt, quite frankly. Uh, and many of the institutions that would be treated as media, for example, the IE, the EIA, right, Energy, like these guys have just become an arm of Davos, man. And they're, they're so absurdly wrong most of the time, increasingly. And they used to be a respected agency. Capital makes decisions based on information. Wall Street, you name it, makes decisions based on information flows. Those information flows are being corrupted. And so their their decision making effectively is being corrupted. But on the ground, you're seeing 
these massive divergences um, in terms of you know supply and demand. The the metric to change that, of course, is price. You know, price fixes everything. Fixes everything. You know, what's the old adage? You know, how do you fix higher prices as well as higher prices? You know, <laughs> um, and so you know we are seeing. Um, and and even with re- with respect to like cash flows of companies, you know. So for example, last year, oil prices began the year at what seventy two, I think it was, and they ended the year at like seventy one, seventy two. Like basically, oil went nowhere. Okay. During that time frame, like we've been very heavily invested in like off- offshore drillers and stuff. They were all flying. Why? Because because you it didn't. The, the, the price of energy was high enough for them to um, to still make a profit. What was critical behind it, and this is where people are missing a lot of this, is that this is a supply side issue. The supply side has been so constricted. You know, people are going, oh, well, you know, if oil prices don't go up or even if they go down, no. Like, oil prices can go down 10 bucks. It doesn't matter. If your supply is constricted in an environment or in an, in a sector, which is a depletive sector, just like that's what's gonna how's it gonna fix it, right? So um so you're seeing, for example, day rates on like rigs, offshore um service vessels and things like that. It's all just been climbing, climbing. And they're running 80, 90% occupancy. And these guys can't run any they can't run hundred percent. Why? Because you've got to service your vessels. Um some of the times they've got to go into dry uh, dry dock for repairs and maintenance and so on and so forth. So basically, when you're running 80% capacity, you're pretty much at, at peak anyway. And that's and then you look at how many of these guys are available. Like 80% of them all got washed away in the last cycle. So there's just, there's no there's no supply, basically. Um, and that's talking about the offshore space, which is still roughly 30% of global energy supplies or global oil supplies, right? So... So there's those sorts of dynamics, and they're already inflected. They're already up. Like, we're up big on a lot of these positions. But the narrative is like, oh, no, you know, wind, solar, da-da-da-da-da. So to your point, I think the market's already inflected. The information flows are much, much slower, largely because they're also corrupted. And there's vested interests that are wishing it to be something other than it is. So where's the opportunity then? Is it in fossil fuels? Like, is this an oil, natural gas, coal space, or is it that and is it nuclear? So specifically, I guess you with uranium, um, where do you see the biggest opportunity? All of them, quite frankly, depending on, so some of it's jurisdictional dependent, you know, for example, natural gas is, is predominantly like a domestic energy source. Um, it's difficult to compress it, store it, transport it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's not it's not so it's not the same as oil or coal. The answer is all of them um in in um in varying shades. And uranium, I don't see uranium being used predominantly, say in North America. And that's again cap cap spending and so on and so forth. But the vast majority of the um, uh, uranium mines that are, or uranium reactors and stuff that are being built, are in China, and and some in Russia and India. So that's where the demand is going to come from. Uranium has inflected as well. 
The the other thing with uranium, like all these markets are different. We could talk about them for hours. I mean, just very quickly. For example, with uranium, like you've got there's no there's no real shortage of uranium in the world, but there is a bottleneck with respect to the ref- enrichment process. And so, because of all of that, most of it has been actually subcontracted out over the last fifteen years. So it's not now it's a geopolitical tool, right? Um, because you could have a ton of uranium, you could even have your own reactors and nuclear facilities, but if you're not enriching your own uranium, that uranium you're pulling out of the ground is worthless to you until it's enriched. And if you don't have the enrichment process, you're now beholden to whoever does. So, and again, we're moving into this geopolitically fractured, or have moved rapidly into a geopolitically fractured environment where, um, you know, why not use energy as a weapon? Um it's, it's almost interesting to see that Putin, for example, has yet to use that as a weapon. And he hasn't. Um, but, you know, never say never. And so those are sort of exogenous event horizons that could take place, that could massively impact those markets. What's important to understand is that we don't need them in order for us to stay in a structural bull market. And the same is true of energy and in terms of oil, for example. Um even coal, for goodness sake. So um, um, we love the whole space. I mean, we we love coal, we love oil. We specifically like within the oil space. We quite like the offshore and um, and service stocks, really, just because of the valuations. Um, you know, and there's <laughs> none of them left. It's amazing. Um, you know, you can go into things like seismic and um, mapping of the um, the ocean floors and things like that these companies again you had the you have these cycles right and in the last cycle you, you get well you get m a top and bottom of the cycle okay bottom of the cycle is where we're now seeing it so that was like pioneer right so that's kind of that's your m a at the bottom and what's interesting is you're not actually adding supply there's no supply added all you're doing is the guys going okay we've got a we've got cash look at dudes We've got a strong balance sheet, and our investors, our shareholders, are far too risk averse to for us to go out and do something risky. Those guys over there, they've got assets. We know them; they're on the balance sheet. We can see them. Let's go and pick that up. We can even just use our balance sheet to go and and, and do the deal. So that's what you get in the bottom of the cycle. You get it in the top of the cycle as well, really, as a consequence of elevated share prices from shareholders being stupid. Right, so this is like the time warning deal, right? Where your your valuations are so high, management teams look around going, "We feel rich. Everyone's throwing money at the company. You know, share prices up. Let's go and use this to buy some competitors." And often, when you do so, then the market rewards you because, "Oh, you're even bigger. You're even better," which is insane. But that's so. That's your top of the cycle. We're at the bottom of the cycle now. So. Some of that M&A is beginning to take place, but there's really nothing to buy. There's really stuff all to buy within that space. So I, we, we've been focused quite a bit on that, and we've got a nice little um, uh, package of a number of, of equities in that space. But really, the entire energy space from oil, natural gas were a little bit less um, invested into, in part, we don't know it as well, to be fair. All heavily invested. 
I think coal stocks, I've said this before, I think coal stocks are going to be like the tobacco stocks over the last 20 years. I don't necessarily see the prices, I don't see investors piling in going coal, coal, coal. We don't need that to happen. These things are trading two, three, sometimes four times free cash flow. They're absolutely superbly cheap. Um, many of them have used their strong cash flow just to buy back stock, um, which just incre- which which just decreases the free float, and they're paying out divvies. I mean, we've got companies paying double digit dividend yields while buying back stock, um, and trading it three times. It's it's insane. So I think you know when you compound the dividends um, and the returns these companies are going to make over the next. 10, 20 years, I think it's going to be like tobacco stocks. Um, so we love coal. Yeah. So you said, uh, you know, that the, the whether it's the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict or, or maybe even Israel and Hamas, that these don't necessarily have to go anywhere to impact the, whether it's, you know, any of the fossil fuel narratives or uranium, the energy narrative. But in, say, in saying that, they, they must... Uh, place some role in your process for investment. And I guess it may be, I'm guessing it's to the upside, but with, you also mentioned that the media is sort of corrupt and I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. So how do you monitor these situations and, and actually understand what is actually happening? Because I think you see kind of both sides projected at different times and it's hard to gauge, at least for someone with me who is skeptical, how do you know what's, what's real and what isn't? The first part of anything is to remain skeptical. I think we don't have enough skeptical people um, in the world. But in terms of determining what's taking place, mostly I just look at capital flows, or at least in terms of determining what's most likely to take place. I'll give you a quick quick example. So um, Turkey's a a country that we've... I've spent some time in and and have some interest in, um, largely because it is a geopolitical choke spot, having the Bosphorus Canal. Um, it's always going to be important. It's part of the heartland. If, if your investors or listeners have never heard of the Mackinder Heartland Theory, I'd suggest going and looking it up. We've written about it extensively. The point is that Turkey is geopolitically um, and geographically very important. It always will be. Then, and as part of NATO, right, it tried to be part of EU for 25 years and I always told them to get stuffed um, and that's certainly um, not going to make them particularly happy. They're ideologically, religiously um, not aligned with the West, but they could see the benefits of, of being part of that union for trade, um, but they were never allowed in. They're important to the West part in in large part as a consequence of their geographical location, which is why they're part of NATO. But that's the only thing that that's the only reason that they're part of NATO. They kind of want them for that, but they don't want them for anything else. The Turks, from their part, are just playing that game. They're like, okay, well, we'll be part of NATO. We'll take your four billion a year that you give us. Cool, thanks for that. But really, they're not ideologically positioned. Now, so that's the basic structure of it. Then you look at trade flows. The greatest levels of trade flows over the last sort of 10, 12 years, um, in, or increasing percentage of trade flows was between China, sorry, between Russia and Turkey. Okay. 
So it's like if you and I were doing business, we might do a couple of deals together. We're not going to go and form a company, you know, the Brian Chris company, until we've got more um, reciprocation, like we until we know each other better and so on and so forth. It's exactly like that. So what you land up seeing are alliances and trade deals and all these being done after an increase in those in that general business being done. So when I look at Turkey, it's China. China's financing everything there. Chinese banks are financing most of the infrastructure, a lot of the infrastructure. Russian technology is being used massively. There's a huge amount of um, uh, cross-border transactions between Turkey and Russia, both for banking, because the Russians all got locked down the banking system. And the Turks are kind of like going, yeah, we're part of the West and we're doing this. I could give you stories around how they're actually doing it and they're getting around it. But the point is, that's that's the trade reciprocation. And so as the pressure builds from the West against the East, if you will, um, ultimately they're going to ma- have to make probably at some point some decision. And they're going to definitely go, well, the probability is that they're going to go with the East. Again, it's like if you and I were doing, if we got to the point where we're doing 80% of our business together and someone else comes in and says, no, Chris, I don't want you to deal with Brian. He's a wanker. I'll be like, Eighty percent of my business, brother. <laughs> so, um, so that's you know, I, I give you that story just because that's when I look at the whole world, I look at trade flows, and I look at those kinds of deals being done. Forget about what the media might be saying, um, because that's predictive of ultimately where things go, both in terms of military, politics, and of course business. So. Um, how that all fits into the whole energy space is is in, is very interesting, um, and certainly what we're watching is the power and influence behind energy markets has been shifting at such a lightning speed towards the east. Largely, um, it's it's mind blowing to me. It's just it's like a suicidal um, move by the west, which I can see the strategy behind it from a geopolitical standpoint to try and subjugate um, those within your realm and then push others to follow that narrative and to try and pull them in at the same time but it's failing it's failing horribly and instead of and once you it's like once you've shot that arrow it's kind of hard to unshoot it and the hubris that exists in the west has meant that they're just doubling down and they just keep doubling down and keep doubling down which is why we're at war and it's why I think the probability of an international war within the next two years is unfortunately increasing. Now, as an asset manager, I look at this and I go, it sucks. I don't want that, like none of us want that, but that doesn't matter. What we want doesn't really matter. My job is, as a fiduciary of capital, is to make sure that I can try and navigate that world and attempt to profit from it. And so in that light, you have to own energy, you know. You you literally have to own, it. and I don't mean wind farms, <laughs> um, you know. So um, again, we don't need that to take place in order for us to have a structural bull market. Come back to the capex spending we were talking about, and the supply side. Uh, again, this is going to be a and it's not inflationary and it's not deflationary; it's stagflationary. Stagnant, shitty economy with rising costs of the things that we need, quite frankly. 
And most of that is as a consequence, both of a, um, a debt restructuring, which is what we have to have, um, mostly from the Western world. I don't believe that debt restructuring, restructuring will take place in an orderly, even inflationary um, environment, which is where some people have said, okay, well, they're just going to print and it's going to inflate it away. I think the numbers are too egregious at this point for that to be a palatable outcome for them. And so I think that they're working towards an outright default and they're going to need a narrative to allow them the plausibility of doing so. And I think that that in itself would be something like war, let us say. It was because of Putin or it was because of Xi or it was because of Bin Salman or they'll just create some 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 um, threat, some enemy, and then um, justify that, much like they did with 9-11. Oh, there were a bunch of um, planes that, you know, went into the towers and it was the Saudis. Oh, no, it wasn't, it was, but it was Iraq. And, and you know, like none of the story made any sense, but it's people, people cheered up and took it. So... They've, they have a precedence for um, for the ability to build narratives and to pull it off where um, they, they haven't been called out on it. So I don't see why they wouldn't try it again. And debt is the big problem at this point. So in in that environment, even if in that environment, which would be a debt repudiation or inflating the debt away, Again, you go, what are the outcomes to that? What do you own? What kind of assets do you own? And and I come very strongly down on stuff in general, energy markets in particular. When it comes to investing in, in energy, you, you definitely mentioned price as a reason to invest. Um, are we talking straight producing companies or, are, or I guess the servicing side of that too? Or do you get into the juniors, you know, the companies that are, uh, you know, ex- exploring and developing projects? I think you should own, well, firstly, as an asset manager, you, you're you a risk manager. Um, you should own multiple, especially multiple um, equities, especially when you can, right? As a cycle develops and as it matures, you have to by default become a bit more picky because valuations start changing and you're like, oh, I had that company, it was a great company, but like, you know, this valuation, I can't really justify owning it anymore. But here's some other ones that I could still own. So you start moving through a phase whereby you have to become more um, more picky around what you own. At the point of the cycle that we're at now, you could literally buy anything, almost anything. And, and so I think that's a time where you should take advantage of that ability to diversify because the other element behind mining in particular is that it's a risky business. So if you're going to step away from the um, producers, you are taking on more risk because you're at a different stage within the, um, within the production cycle. So that, that's not to say, like people say, oh, would you own... You know, some of these small cap companies that are developers or whatever, fine, you can own any of them, but you need to weight it accordingly within your portfolio. For example, I wouldn't just own a bunch of small cap um, development or explorers, hell, without owning um, producers. It doesn't make any sense to me because you risk having this inflection and the cycle move in your fashion and you just happen to buy the three explorers 
they'd run out of cash because they couldn't finance. Or one of them maybe gets nationalized by the triagers or like whatever. There's any number of risks that any particular company can have, right? <clears throat> so, and that's not to say that you wouldn't invest in the company. It just means you've got to weight your position accordingly. So you kind of got to build yourself a matrix as to what the risks are in different sectors and then even each company has its own risks and try and build yourself like a quasi ETF, if you will, around that. So um, that's that's how we go about structuring our portfolio across everything that we own, whether it be uranium positions, um, coal companies, oil and gas, you name it, fertilizer companies. Um, yeah, so, um, and that's just a, that's just a matter of, of portfolio management, which I, again, people don't really, I think, pay enough attention to. They'll often get excited by a story of a company. And you should never be excited about investing. It shouldn't be boring as fuck. Talking about risk and risk management, I think jurisdictional risk more than ever should be on investors' minds. Um, I think was something interesting and I never thought I would see happen happened last week with uh, Javier uh Milay, I don't know how to say Milay getting elected in Argentina. And uh as a libertarian myself, I I never thought I would see it, especially in a country that has been a basket case for so long. How do you view Argentina now? Do you see actual change coming there or is this just a mirage? So Argentina, <clears throat> we took positions in October of 21, we started investing into Argentina. We went out to clients and we told them that we didn't know exactly. And and here's the thing. People want certainty. Investors want certainty. Your listeners probably want to sit down and listen to me and be like, that guy knows exactly everything. You don't always know exactly everything. By the time that everything, become, all the information becomes available to you, often you're up three times. So... Some of it is a gut instinct, and gut instinct maybe is just a culmination of lots of experience. Uh, but what led us into investing into Argentina in 2021, October 2021, was a couple of things. Extreme valuations <clears throat> on the cheap side. The market itself was telling us that something was happening. You could see it inflecting. In you, you spend years and years looking at charts and going through these cycles, and you just get a sense for where probability lies. So there were a couple of things that, well, again, you build narratives in your head. You go, why is this happening? What's going on? I need to understand what's going on. Um, and like my business partner, Brad, said to me, he said, I mean, maybe just overthinking it. It's like something's happening. We need to take a position. So we took small positions. You know, I think we took like a three, four percent weighting in our fund into Argentina. And again, we stayed within the sectors that we wanted to be, you know, um, energy, agriculture, stuff like that. Then what you had was you had the Brazilian elections, right? And I'm like, that, okay, now we need to take more positions. Partly because Brazil was causing issues. Like it was globally, everyone's like, we don't know who's going to win. You know, there were people in the streets. There was a bit of, protests and like it was just markets hate uncertainty and there's a lot of uncertainty in Brazil. Now, 
think about capital that's going to be invested into South America. If you're an asset manager and you've got a South American fund, what are you going to buy? You basically, and, and you're a decent size, you know, you're not, you're like know, a couple of billion. You've got Brazil, Argentina, and Chile. There's nothing else really that you can buy. Chile has already gone hard left. So a lot of capital was like, oh shit, we don't like that. Brazil was teetering and we were like, we don't really know what's going on, but it's shaky, right? Everyone would be like, Argentina's just been a basket case forever. Who gives a fuck about it? So maybe your allocation was only 5% if you're an asset manager. Maybe 5 maybe 10% to Argentina. And then you had a whole lot in Brazil and maybe a little bit in Chile and whatever. Just on a weighting basis, weighting your portfolio into, into countries, you were like, okay, we've got risk in, in Brazil. Where else do you go? So for us, and we're like, Argentina's so cheap. We're like, that's where you go. It doesn't need, it doesn't, it's not that it's better. It's just that there's issues elsewhere, right? Because nothing happens within a vacuum. So those are some of the dynamics that led us into Argentina then. And then we started seeing Mille come through. And we're like, well, you know, this is very, very interesting and it's very exciting. This is the first self-stated anarcho-capitalist who came from nothing. I mean, he didn't even have a party to be, to be fair, not really to speak of. And he was raising, you know, he's rising in popularity in the polls and so on and so forth. So um, that was then. Um, we were, I remember, I remember doing um, a speech in Orlando last May, and I highlighted it at the end of my speech. I said, have a look at Argentina. This is what we were at already. And we were up already like 60% or something. I said, but we're not even getting started. The probability here is really, really good purely on a... Um, risk-reward basis. Obviously, since then, things have gone kind of bonkers. <clears throat> but even so, if you go and you look at valuations now, they're still very, very cheap. If, if I, th I don't think it's... Um, there's a lot of people coming out saying, oh, well, Miele's, you know, um, he's going to use the dollar and he's just making it worse. And he, what he has stated is that people should choose money, Right. Now, if you think about friction in the system, what are he, all that he's going to be doing that he's promised to do, we'll see whether that transpires or not, is to like eliminate the government, which is eliminating friction. Your net positive result as a consequence of that could be enormous. So on probability, it's not like you go, you put everything in Argentina, but your probability within a diversified portfolio means that some weighting to Argentina makes a whole lot of sense at this point in time. Um, so, and and there's another element that I think is worth considering here, which is that the people have repudiated the socialists at scale. That in itself should be applauded, even if Millet is not perfect and lower, no one's perfect. You know, I, I see people coming out going, "Oh well, he's just gone and he's met with Bill Clinton and all this." Look. That's what politicians do. You're going to go and you're going to meet with all the various people. Um, I think give him some benefit of the doubt and let's see what happens. Again, on probability, like if he just turns out to be another socialist, well, guess what? Nothing really changes, but you you haven't lost that much, you know. So um, I think it's a, yeah, it's a, a space to watch. We, we're, we, like I said, we've been invested, you know, um, for, for years now. So it's not kind of new to us. Um, we were certainly probably some of the first in, 
And again, it wasn't because of Melee that we got in, as I mentioned, but um, certainly the market had become, had, had, it, it, you could see the market had started pricing different outcomes. And you and like not being Argentinian or not being on the ground, I was like, something's happening now. What is it? And now you could easily make the case and say, well, yeah, that was part of that was, you know, um, a political change that the market was beginning to price. Because remember, if you're in if you're in big business in any country, you are typically connected to government. That's how it works. Lobby groups, dinners, people you play golf with, all that kind of stuff. So you can you imagine you're one of those guys and you start seeing some potential change and you don't start allocating capital accordingly? No, of course you're going to. You're a capitalist. Like, what the hell? So money always starts moving first. And again, it comes back to what I talked about before with respect to looking at trade flows. The money comes first. Then you see deals done. Then you see alliances built. So I like watching the money because it, you can't argue with it. It doesn't, like, you don't need some politician telling you you don't need some hedge fund telling you just look at what's at where's the money moving to and then you go why and and who benefits um interest rates i i think uh being a gold investor uh i think i speak for a, a lot of them in saying that you know a lot of people's eyes are on interest rates and where the u.s fed might be headed in terms of policy and how that might affect the gold market in your view do you think we'll see a change in policy? Like, do we have to see a crash in the economy, the U.S. economy, for them to change policy in in twenty twenty four or moving forward um, to get this policy flip? That even though we have a, a strong gold price by by many standards, uh, but what do you think about interest rates? Where is the U.S. Fed headed in twenty twenty four? Over say a five ten year time frame, there's no question we are in a bear market in bonds that's not going to change and and my like i'm not a trader i'm not trying to figure out what happens in the next six months i think too many people try and do that and they just get whipsawed especially in a market like this they're getting it whipsawed out you need to define what your goals are you need to figure out what the way we look at it we look out three to five years and we say we need to be there for that the noise that happens in between we're going to literally ignore it because it doesn't matter. Any number of things can take place. And that affords us the ability to be stoic in, in chaos and noise. And I think you have to embrace the chaos because we're going to get much more of it. And if you don't embrace the chaos, you're going to get whipsawed and you're going to get slaughtered. Um, with respect to interest rates, like I said, we're in a bear market in bonds, which means rates go, go up. What the Fed's doing now, I think they'll continue to do as much as they can, is they're going to keep monetary policy tight and fiscal loose. So they've got the ability, the US has got the ability to do that. You know, Nigeria, Britain, you know, anyone that doesn't have a reserve currency doesn't have the same ability to do that. So that's one thing. I think that's going to continue. The flip side or the other element behind that is the pressures that that creates on because again nothing happens in a vacuum so you look at that you go oh, that that's cool but that's not the end of the <clears throat> that's not the end of the the thinking process you need to go well what does that mean for periphery countries what does it mean for developing markets 
both in terms of their economies and in terms of their political structures and so on and so forth. And that's where this gets very, very problematic because as the, as the Fed keeps monetary policy tight, this massively impacts anybody with dollar-based debt external to the US. So we're seeing that's why the dollar's been strong and I don't anticipate that's going to change. I know there's a lot of gold bugs who are like, oh, the dollar's going to die. The dollar, No, the dollar dies by literally going up. It dies by going up because there's so much, so many dollars that are as there, it's a debt-based system. And in a debt-based system, when you're raising rates, that puts huge constraints on those that own dollars and they've got to pay it back. That creates a demand for dollars. So that's the environment they're in. And, and you could argue that that's also being used as a, as a military weapon. Hey, you guys do as you're told. We're going to keep raising rates. And so think about it like this. You could have a country that you want to, I don't know, have military bases in. Okay. You tighten monetary conditions. They're f- you then go to them and go, it's cool, dudes. We'll open swap lines with you. Or you don't want the swap lines? Okay. We can do that too. You know, oh, you mean you're not going to give us those military bases? All right. You know, so there's, these, these can be utilized as tools to which, which your average person doesn't necessarily look at. You've got to think two, three steps ahead with respect to um, politics, control. That's sort of all, it's all of this stuff is just about power. And, and you also got to remember most of the world is run by sociopaths. Now, I'm not yeah saying one side's better than the other. I just, I've got to play the game between multiple sociopaths with differing agendas. Um, so I think rates are actually likely to stay high. I don't, I think everyone's looking around going, wait, Fed's going to break something and then they're going to have to taper. Why? If they've got a bigger, bigger game to play, then they don't really care about the, look, none of these people care about the, the little man on the street. So the domestic consumer, they don't give a shit about him. On a political side, they might want him insofar as to drive him a certain way with with respect to politics. Um, but even in that respect, I'm not so sure that this time they're going to be doing that. And if you look at in the US, you look at the um, the left, they've been doing everything that they can to piss people off. And um, so... I'm of the opinion that we're probably not going to even have elections in 2024. I know that's a bit of a controversial opinion, but if you look at the standpoint that they've taken so far, they're certainly not doing anything that would put them in a position to be elected. I think it's more likely that they would rather have some exogenous event that allows them to cancel elections like they did in Ukraine. Right. And I guess the most likely or the one... I guess the most likely narrative I've heard is along the lines of war, right? Yeah. That, that would be yeah. wartime. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And so then you go, what does that mean for rates? Yeah. Okay. So like you can't, okay. so rates have to go up. They have to, have to go up. Um, and even if you default it, even if you had a domestic default on, on certain domestic liabilities and so on and so forth, you know, and they could keep the fund, the Fed funds rate at whatever. It doesn't matter because then you just have a repudiation of the currency. People are like, you guys defaulted. Like, what? Yeah. You know, the, the, so in that environment, then gold flies. 
Interesting. Um, you know, I think the reality of uh, like talking about junior resource sector or junior mining investment is that most investors lose money. In your view, where do you think most investors go wrong in terms of how they play the market? Because they just look at stories. They like stories. And look, the, the gold market is littered with a bunch of, how do I say this politely, salespeople. Okay. So one of the benefits um, that I find in my work, and, and look, we can all fall prey to wanting certain things that are beneficial to us. Okay. So if I ran a gold fund, I kind of need to be a gold bug. I kind of need to be the guy that says gold is the thing to buy because that's what I'm selling. Like if I'm the dude that sells Lexuses um, on the parking lot, I'm like, I'm a fan of Lexus, man. You got to buy a Lexus. So um, I'm very fortunate to just be that agnostic asset manager where I really don't care. I'll buy anything. I do not care. And so I've I can look at things and say this makes sense or it doesn't make sense or it makes sense to some extent. I'll have a small weighting in it. Um, but I don't have to get, I don't have to buy into any narrative. I can just look at trade flows. I can just look at what's actually happening and then make my decisions without listening to the noise. The noise is what distracts you. Um, and there's plenty of people out there trying to distract you. So like we just talked about energy, bullish as hell on energy, right? And there's plenty of people out there who are bullish on energy. Some of them running energy funds. And I look at their stuff and I'm like, that's interesting and everything else. I also realize as the cycle turns, they're in a predicament. They're in a situation where they're like, yeah, but it's my business. I'm selling energy or energy stocks or whatever it is. So, um, and I'll be like, I'm selling them. <laughs> so you need to just be careful as to, I guess, getting as, as individual investors, I think they get caught up in liking um, a particular person because he's got something interesting to say and he could be a great guy, but it's at the wrong time of the cycle and not understand. And he might not even, I know plenty of people in the, in the space and they're wonderful, nice people. Um, and I still see them getting caught because they're, they're in their business and they need, they're like always thinking, how do I make my business better? And that's what we should be doing. But it can blind you to things that you don't necessarily want to be the case. Um, and, and I think that's the biggest risk. And so, you know, that's, I go, I took a lot of stick for it. Um, for years was kind of talking back against the gold bugs saying, no, you guys are wrong. Like that. And then a lot of it's like, oh, we're going to have inflation. Therefore you buy gold. No. You can have inflation periods and gold doesn't do well. You can have deflation periods and gold doesn't do well. Or or it does. Where it where it does do well is typically as a consequence of a loss of faith. That's been my experience. In if you go and if you just go and research it, don't listen to what people say. Just look and see, look at the cycles. See what happened in the cycle, what happened to the price of gold, what happened to the price of gold equities, what happened? And and come to your own judgment call. Um so I think like anything, it's important to just try and look at the numbers, look at the facts, look at the trade flows, um, and then and then you can listen to stories, if you will, and see if that if they make sense. Sometimes they do, and sometimes you're like, yeah, it doesn't really make sense, um, because that's I think that's the risk. We get caught up in the way our brain works is we want to understand something, you know. 
I just like, you know, put this thing up and like, what is that? You go, oh, I've seen it before. It's a phone. Like, and if I put it up something that looks like it, it looks kind of like a phone. Your brain automatically says, I need to understand what that is. If I put up something that looks like an apple, you're like, I think it's an apple. It's not really like an apple. I kind of like an orange. Your brain always has to answer the question. And so um, when we're looking at gold markets or any market, we're often going, why is it priced like that? You know, and and so we're trying to answer that question. I'd almost take it a step back and just go, what drives these markets? What typically drives them? What do the cycles look like? Cycles are super important, super, super important. They give you this overall guideline and it's not 100% correct, but it gets you probably 80% of the way there. You know, just to identify where should you look, that and then just looking at, you just pull up charts on, well, pull up stocks on valuations in sectors. If you find a particular sector that that has many, many stocks that are super cheap, there's probably something going on with that sector. Then you can go and investigate it. You can have it with one stock and then it's like, doesn't it doesn't mean anything. Um, you know, so that's the risk is, is the risk is narratives. Chris, where can people follow you on social media and your website? Um, so social media, I only really use Twitter, which is, um, capitalist exp at capitalist exp. Um, and then on our publication website, which is capitalistexploits.at for Apple T for Tomato and for asset management business it's glenorkeycapital.net Excellent. I'll make sure to link to those in the description. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure Chris talking to you. Uh, Great great answers and uh, great conversation. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It's good to chat. All the best. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-one returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.